0: 307, chapters 5 and 6. Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 307 schooled. This episode brought to you by Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home, and Knit Circus, the e-newsletter delivered to your mailbox, bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at www.knitcircus.com, and Pennywise Consulting, technology solutions for your small business. And links to all of our sponsors can be found in the sidebar of the show notes at craftlit.com. Please visit them, as their support for the show is one of the things that keeps it free for you. And this episode is also brought to you by Audible. If you are not already an Audible subscriber, please visit audiblepodcast.com slash craftlit. And Audible Podcast is all one word. So audiblepodcast.com slash craftlet. And I'll share my latest Audible finds with you shortly. But first, the title of the podcast. It has been a rough couple of months over here in Northern Virginia. And the last two weeks seem to have been the longest stretch entirely. And uh, I've learned a lot about myself. I have relearned some lessons that I thought I learned a long time ago, and am trying to refocus on the things that matter, Uh, friends and family and things like that. But that won't affect you or the podcast. You might see me less on social media, because that is a huge time suck, and I want to spend time with my family and friends. But the thing that you won't see changing is the podcast and in fact the enhanced ebook of age of innocence this is so you could do a read along if you wanted to it will have links to craftlet it will have links to just the books and it will allow you to play the audio in the background while you are looking at the text in the foreground plus the text is loaded with hyperlinks so all sorts of weird obscure stuff way more than i can smash into A podcast, an audio podcast. All of these links are in the document. Now, we figured out how to get it to a PDF. We've even figured out how to get it to an EPUB for uh, iPads. Kindle seems to be fighting back and refusing to accept the links. So, if you know some secret thing about InDesign and Kindle format, please share because I'm using the Kindle. In to transfer it, but it strips all of the hyperlinks away, and that kind of makes it useless. But the enhanced ebook will be available one way or t'other on the show notes for episode 307. I, people have been writing in and asking for this, and so I've been struggling to try and find the solution for how to disseminate this, but I've finally just come up with kind of a fail-safe, and it's a Hail Mary pass, and I hope it works. But all of it will be explained in the show notes at craftlit.com for episode 307. And during all this time of soul searching and weeping and self-flagellation, I found one thing that helped to maintain my sanity and my belief that people really are good and life is not as bad as it seems. And that was one book, a very simple book, not a very long book, It's not even six hours of audio, but it's read by the author. It's available at Audible. And between the calm certitude of the author's voice and the lyrical, magical world that is created in the book, I found myself finding a way to reground and recenter and just be and I have never needed to just be as much as I needed to the last couple of weeks. And that book, as you may have guessed, was The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. He is a marvelous reader, and he does a masterful job of reading this book. I didn't read any reviews before I listened to it. I am not going to tell you anything about it more than I just have. But I will say it is is just a lovely, lovely read. And it is available to you at audiblepodcast.com slash craftlet. Or if you are already an Audible member, you could use one of your credits to get the book. It's wonderful. Available, at Audible, and I think it's hooked up on the whisper sync thing so that if you wanted to go back and forth between Kindle and Audible, you can. I have to check on that for you, but I will put a link in the show notes if there is a, a WhisperSync version so that you can go Kindle to Audible and back again. My husband also sent me a page that I am going to post in the show notes of three very different letters. And you should all go to the site and you should all open the link and you should all bookmark the link because when you're having a lousy day, and everything is going wrong, and there doesn't seem to be a light at the end of the tunnel, you will want to read one of these three letters. One of them is from Stephen Fry, which is pretty awesome. And, uh, and you'll be surprised by the other two. I think it was actually Stephen Fry's letter said, it's like the weather. You can't control the weather, number one. And some days it's going to rain, and some days it's going to be gloomy, and some days it's going to be cloudy. And sometimes... It's going to be like that for weeks. And then there'll be a sunny day again. And as long as you kind of keep that in mind, everything's going to be fine. And uh, it was the, (laughs) he said it much better than I did. So it was the way he said it that made it sound so good. But, but I have linked to those. And then the last little newsy bit, I have finished The cowl for my sister, the Mobius cowl. And so uh, that pattern will be going out to the subscribers shortly. That means streaming subscribers. Keep your eyes open for an all caps episode. That will be a video podcast that will have a link for you embedded in the video to tell you where to get your copy of this pattern, should you so desire. Um, Download only subscribers. It will appear on the webpage where you download your audio from and then it will also be up in my revelry store so you can find it there as well i'm really i'm so happy with it it's as all mobius cowls uh it starts in the middle and it works out but my sister is kind of an interesting person and i actually have physical proof photographic proof that she is snow white And and what I mean by that is, she was the kind of child who would walk out into the forest and the animals would come to her. And we have a picture of a squirrel on her head. I think it was eating a nut. I think she would just put a nut on her head and they would just, you know, skitter up. Uh, Deer would come up to her. Wild horses would come up to her. All animals loved her. And so I found a pattern called fawn's eyes that reminded me of her and the deer. And then, um, And then instead of having the cowl just kind of end, I wanted it to go out into points like lacy points. So I found a lace pattern that had the same number of stitches in the repeat. And I figured out how to block it so that you can get the points to pull out and be all pretty and all. So that was pretty cool. Plus I used Rowan yarn because her baby's name is Rowan. So that's all of the backstory to the the Sydney said it couldn't be done cowl. And that'll be in my Ravelry shop soon. Uh, the only other thing that I wanted to let you know about is this pattern called Dreambird. I'm sure you've all heard of this. I'm, I'm always late to the game. But it's, it, they're calling it swing knitting. And really, it's just uh, cleverly contrived short row knitting in order to create a very specific, in this case, feather style shape. And I'll tell you the truth the first feather took me an entire plane ride. And that's saying something. Uh, however, the latest update to this pattern, which I will link to, uh, it's, it's for sale on Ravelry. The latest update to the pattern has an Excel chart and more detailed details, I guess, uh, that have made it make more sense. And so what I did is uh, I matched up the written instructions, which can sometimes be rather oblique, and and I was able to compare that to the Excel sheet. So anytime that the uh, written instructions didn't make any sense, I could make a, a pretty decent guess off of the Excel sheet. And there's a whole lot of rigmarole about using black safety pins and gold safety pins and all this kind of stuff, and I think at least your first time out, maybe your second time out, I would probably do exactly what it says, just so you can see the concept that the designer is, is building. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that once you got the hang of it, it cooks along pretty nicely. Because I'll tell you, I did uh, two thirds of a feather while watching an episode of Buffy, Right. I know from the beginning, from the start, and so it's it's not that it's not that hard. It can't possibly be that hard if I could move that fast. It's all garter stitch with some carefully placed non garter stockinette stitch to uh, to create a shaft like the quill in a feather. So it's it's textured and it's interesting and it's a great way to use sock yarn. I am using straight up sock yarn. I did not want to use mohair my first time out which is she recommends it for the feathers because it'll make it look kind of fluffy. Uh, I didn't want to tink or a frog mohair. Call me crazy. So I've just used a very pretty multicolored sock yarn and a very simple basic black background. And I'm making it for my mom's birthday because she dances. She dances. She runs in marathons. She rides motorcycles. She's amazing. And she dances like ballroom dances, like dancing with the stars dances. And I thought, Oh, she would look awesome in this. She could just whip this sucker off in a tango and fling it across the floor. And because it's sock yarn, who cares? So it's an interesting pattern. Take a look. Don't be intimidated. And the uh, support group, there's a knit along on Ravelry. The support group there is very supportive and you can kind of read through all of the questions that people had and you can see how they got answered. And then, of course, there's this one uh, guy, actually, guy here who in the States who made the chart. And that was a godsend. That was a big help. So cool, interesting little pattern if you haven't seen it already. And I have also linked to a Brene Brown TED Talk. Now, a long time ago, well, within the last year, I think, I linked to a Brene Brown talk that um, one of you sent to me that was all about vulnerability. And, and it's marvelous. It's a beautiful talk. And then accidentally, I found she has another talk called Listening to Shame. And there is actually a section in there that relates very much to Newland Archer in today's chapters. I was so excited. So I'm linking to uh, both of the TED Talks, but I'll label the one that has the little bit about Newland Archer, not specifically about Newland Archer, but about men in general. And uh, and I thought you might, you might find it fascinating. I think both of her talks are about 20 minutes long. So uh, it's a commitment of time, definitely, but not as long as the podcast. <laughs> That's a great selling point. Well, we need to get on with age of innocence and today i've decided to play you two chapters back to back again just seemed to work well that way because these two chapters I i guess to me these two chapters were the moment where i decided i really liked newland and i think it has something to do with the way that he surprises himself he already did it once if you remember back at the opera when, when he started kind of, you know, just as a knee-jerk reaction defending uh, Ellen Olenska. He goes a little further today, and the opinions he's expressing are, as far as I can tell, pretty radical for 1870. I mean, this is way before women get the vote. But he is, if not empathetic, he is at least sympathetic to a point There are still uh, bounds of propriety that he's not willing to cross, which makes perfect sense. But he, he does, to me, seem to step outside the world that's allowed. And this is that one moment, I think I told you there were a couple moments in the book where I went, okay, well, maybe that could fly with a high school student. This is one of those moments for me because there are only two groups i can think of that can rev themselves up on gossip and ostracize or hurt other people better than a group of high school students or a group of females of any age i don't know what it is but we do a marvelous job of eating each other alive and I remember watching the girls in high school, both when I was in high school, but also teaching and, and watching how hard and sometimes cruel they could be to each other. And Newland, of course, because he is a man and because he is moneyed and he is of the correct class and of the correct family, he's named after two families after all. There are the Newlands, and that's a surname, and they're the Archers, and that's a surname. And he's named after the Newlands, because his mom was a Newland, and the Archers, because he's an archer. So the, the only reason he seems to be able to pull this off is because he is who he is at the level that he's at. And it kind of reminds me of those, those rare moments, and we did have them at my high school, where the, the quarterback would shake hands with the geek. We had a a football team that was run by a coach with great integrity and our football players and our basketball players for that matter and our water polo players they all uh, deported themselves with a a great deal of honesty and, and just genuine goodwill but They were in a position where they could lead the way for other people to say, Oh, it's okay. I guess I can talk to that kid too. Because once that, you know, once that opening's been made, then it's okay. And so here we see Newland starting, anyway, starting to do that. And we don't know if it's going to be successful yet. Not yet. But we're going to find out and uh, and and oh there's some lovely writing at the beginning of chapter 5 uh, Mr. Sillerton Jackson if you remember from his introduction at the opera he is the man who knows everything about everyone and he kind of keeps it in his mind like like a rolodex of gossip he can just flip through <laughs> that's dating me huh like a file of, facts of gossip like a iphone of gossip <laughs> like an evernote of gossip there's the new one so he's He's got all this information in his brain, which he shares judiciously. And there's some really funny commentary from Edith Wharton about the food and about the wine and about what to expect at different people's homes. And then there's the dinnertime conversation and it's awfully revealing. And I don't, I don't want to give away any more until afterwards because we can't talk about what happens until then. All right, so here we go, chapters five and six of The Age
1: of Innocence, by Edith Wharton. Chapter 5 The next evening, old Mr. Sillerton Jackson came to dine with the Archers. Mrs. Archer was a shy woman, and shrank from society. But she liked to be well informed as to its doings. Her old friend, Mr. Sillerton Jackson applied to the investigation of his friend's affairs the patience of a collector and the science of a naturalist. And his sister, Miss Sophie Jackson, who lived with him and was entertained by all the people who could not secure her much-sought-after brother, brought home bits of minor gossip that filled in usefully the gaps in his picture. Therefore... Whenever anything happened that Mrs. Archer wanted to know about, she asked Mr. Jackson to dine. And as she honored few people with her invitations, and as she and her daughter Janey were an excellent audience, Mr. Jackson usually came himself instead of sending his sister. If he could have dictated all the conditions, he would have chosen the evenings when Newland was out. "'not because the young man was uncongenial to him. "'The two got on capitally, at the club. "'But because the old anecdotist sometimes felt, "'on Newland's part, "'a tendency to weigh his evidence "'that the ladies of the family never showed. "'Mr. Jackson, if perfection had been attainable on earth, "'would also have asked "'that Mrs. Archer's food should be a little better. "'But then New York,' as far back as the mind of man could travel, had been divided into the two great fundamental groups of the Mingott's and the Manson's and all their clan, who cared about eating and clothes and money, and the Archer, Newland, van der Luyden tribe, who were devoted to travel, horticulture, and the best fiction, and looked down on the grosser forms of pleasure. You couldn't have everything after all. If you dined with the level mingots, you got canvas back and terrapin and vintage wines. At Adelaide Archer's, you could talk about alpine scenery and the marble fawn, and luckily, the Archer Madeira had gone round the Cape, therefore, when a friendly summons came from Mrs. Archer, mister Jackson, who was a true eclectic, would usually say to his sister. I've been a little gouty since my last dinner at the Lovell Mingott's. It'll do me good to dine at Adeline's. Mrs. Archer, who had long been a widow, lived with her son and daughter in West 28th Street. An upper floor was dedicated to Newland, and the two women squeezed themselves into narrower quarters below. In an unclouded harmony of tastes and interests, They cultivated ferns in Wardian cases, made macrame lace and wool embroidery on linen, collected American revolutionary glazed ware, subscribed to good words, and read Ouida's novels for the sake of the Italian atmosphere. They preferred those about peasant life because of the descriptions of scenery and the pleasanter sentiments. "'though in general they liked novels about people in society, "'whose motives and habits were more comprehensible. "'Spoke severely of Dickens, who had never drawn a gentleman, "'and considered Thackeray less at home in the great world than Bulware, "'who, however, was beginning to be thought old-fashioned. "'Mrs. and Miss Archer were both great lovers of scenery.' It was what they principally sought and admired on their occasional travels abroad, considering architecture and painting as subjects for men, and chiefly for learned persons who read Ruskin. Mrs. Archer had been born a Newland, and mother and daughter, who were as like as sisters, were both, as people said, true Newlands, tall, pale, and slightly round-shouldered, with long noses, "'sweet smiles, and a kind of drooping distinction "'like that in certain faded Reynolds portraits. "'Their physical resemblance would have been complete "'if an elderly enbonpoint had not stretched "'Mrs. Archer's black brocade, "'while Miss Archer's brown and purple poplins hung, "'as the years went on, "'more and more slackly on her virgin frame. "'Mentally the likeness between them, "'as Newland was aware,' was less complete than their identical mannerisms often made it appear. The long habit of living together in mutually dependent intimacy had given them the same vocabulary and the same habit of beginning their phrases Mother thinks or Janie thinks according as one or the other wished to advance an opinion of her own. But in reality... While Mrs. Archer's serene unimaginativeness rested easily in the accepted and familiar, Janie was subject to starts and aberrations of fancy, welling up from springs of suppressed romance. Mother and daughter adored each other, and revered their son and brother. And Archer loved them with a tenderness made compunctious and uncritical, by the sense of their exaggerated admiration and by his secret satisfaction in it. After all, he thought it a good thing for a man to have his authority respected in his own house, even if his sense of humor sometimes made him question the force of his mandate. On this occasion, the young man was very sure that Mr. Jackson would rather have had him dine out, "'but he had his own reasons for not doing so. "'Of course, old Jackson wanted to talk about Ellen Olenska. "'And, of course, Mrs. Archer and Janey wanted to hear what he had to tell. "'All three would be slightly embarrassed by Newland's presence "'now that his prospective relation to the Mingott's clan had been made known. "'And the young man waited with an amused curiosity "'to see how they would turn the difficulty.' They began, obliquely, by talking about Mrs. Lemuel Struthers. "'It's a pity the Beauforts asked her,' Mrs. Archer said gently. "'But then Regina always does what he tells her, and Beaufort... "'Certain nuances escape Beaufort,' said Mr. Jackson, "'cautiously inspecting the broiled shad "'and wondering for the thousandth time "'why Mrs. Archer's cook always burnt the row to a cinder.' "'Newland,' "'who had long shared his wonder, "'could always detect in it "'the older man's expression "'of melancholy disapproval. "'Oh, necessarily, Beaufort is a vulgar man,' "'said Mrs. Archer. "'My grandfather Newland "'always used to say to my mother, "'Whatever you do, "'don't let that fellow Beaufort "'be introduced to the girls.' "'But at least he's had the advantage "'of associating with gentlemen. "'In England, too, they say. "'It's all very mysterious.' She glanced at Janie and paused. She and Janie knew every fold of the Beaufort mystery, but in public, Mrs. Archer continued to assume that the subject was not one for the unmarried. "'But this Mrs. Struthers,' Mrs. Archer continued, "'what did you say she was, Sillerton?' "'Out of a mine, or rather out of a saloon at the head of the pit, "'and then living waxworks.' "'Touring New England. "'After the police broke that up, they say she lived.' "'Mr. Jackson, in his turn, glanced at Janie, "'whose eyes began to bulge from under her prominent lids. "'There were still hiatuses for her in Mrs. Struthers' past. "'Then Mr. Jackson continued, "'and Archer saw he was wondering why no one had told the butler "'never to slice cucumbers with a steel knife. "'Then Lemuel Struthers came along.' "'They say his advertiser used the girl's head for the shoe-polish posters. "'Her hair's intensely black, you know, the Egyptian style. "'Anyhow, he eventually married her. "'There were volumes of innuendo in the way the eventually was spaced, "'and each syllable was given its due stress. "'Oh, well, at the pass we've come to nowadays, it doesn't matter,' "'said Mrs. Archer indifferently.' The ladies were not really interested in Mrs. Struthers just then. The subject of Ellen Olenska was too fresh and too absorbing to them. Indeed, Mrs. Struthers' name had been introduced by Mrs. Archer only that she might presently be able to say, "'And Newland's new cousin, Countess Olenska, was she at the ball, too?' There was a faint touch of sarcasm in the reference to her son, and Archer knew it and had expected it. Even Mrs. Archer, who was seldom unduly pleased with human events, had been altogether glad of her son's engagement, especially after that silly business with Mrs. Rushworth, as she had remarked to Janie, alluding to what had once seemed to Newland a tragedy of which his soul would always bear the scar." "'There was no better match in New York than May Welland. "'Look at the question from whatever point you chose. "'Of course such a marriage was only what Newland was entitled to. "'But young men are so foolish and incalculable, "'and some women so ensnaring and unscrupulous, "'that it was nothing short of a miracle "'to see one's only son, safe past the siren isle "'and in the haven of a blameless domesticity.' All this Mrs. Archer felt, and her son knew she felt. But he knew also that she had been perturbed by the premature announcement of his engagement, or rather, by its cause. And it was for that reason, because on the whole he was a tender and indulgent master, that he stayed at home that evening. It's not that I don't approve of the Mingott's esprit de corps, But why Newland's engagement should be mixed up with that Olenska woman's comings and goings I don't see, Mrs. Archer grumbled to Janie, the only witness of her slight lapses from perfect sweetness. She had behaved beautifully, and in beautiful behavior she was unsurpassed during the call on Mrs. Welland. But Newland knew, and his betrothed doubtless guessed. "'that all through the visit she and Janey were nervously on the watch for "'Madame Olenska's possible intrusion. "'And when they left the house together, "'she had permitted herself to say to her son, "'I am thankful that Augusta Welland received us alone.' "'These indications of inward disturbance moved Archer the more "'that he too felt the Mingotts had gone a little too far.' but as it was against all the rules of their code that the mother and son should ever allude to what was uppermost in their thoughts, he simply replied, Oh, well, there's always a phase of family parties to be gone through when one gets engaged, and the sooner it's over, the better. At which his mother merely pursed her lips under the lace veil that hung down from her grey velvet bonnet trimmed with frosted grapes, Her revenge, he felt, her lawful revenge, would be to draw Mr. Jackson that evening on the Countess Olenska, and, having publicly done his duty as a future member of the Mingott clan, the young man had no objection to hearing the lady discussed in private, except that the subject was already beginning to bore him. Mr. Jackson had helped himself to a slice of the tepid fillet which the mournful butler had handed him with a look as skeptical as his own, and had rejected the mushroom sauce after a scarcely perceptible sniff. He looked baffled and hungry, and Archer reflected that he would probably finish his meal on Ellen Olenska. Mr. Jackson leaned back in his chair and glanced up at the candlelit Archer's, Newland's, and van der Luyden's, "'hanging in dark frames on the dark walls. "'Ah, how your grandfather Archer loved a good dinner, my dear Newland,' "'he said, his eyes on the portrait of a plump, full-chested young man "'in a stock and a blue coat, "'with a view of a white-columned country house behind him. "'Well, well, well. "'I wonder what he would have said to all these foreign marriages.' Mr. Archer ignored the allusion to the ancestral cuisine, and Mr. Jackson continued with deliberation. No, she was not at the ball. Ah, Mrs. Archer murmured in a tone that implied she had that decency. Perhaps the Beauforts don't know her, Janie suggested, with artless malice. Mr. Jackson gave a faint sip, "'as if he had been tasting invisible Madeira. "'Mrs. Beaufort may not, but Beaufort certainly does, "'for she was seen walking up Fifth Avenue this afternoon with him "'by the whole of New York.' "'Mercy!' moaned Mrs. Archer, "'evidently perceiving the uselessness of trying to ascribe "'the actions of foreigners to a sense of delicacy. "'I wonder if she wears a round hat or a bonnet in the afternoon.' "'Janey speculated. "'At the opera, I know she had on a dark blue velvet, "'perfectly plain and flat, like a nightgown. "'Janey,' said her mother, "'and Miss Archer blushed and tried to look audacious. "'It was, at any rate, in better taste not to go to the ball,' "'Mrs. Archer continued. "'A spirit of perversity moved her son to rejoin. "'I don't think it was a question of taste with her,' May said she meant to go and then decided that the dress in question wasn't smart enough. Mrs. Archer smiled at this confirmation of her inference. Poor Ellen, she simply remarked. Adding compassionately, we must always bear in mind what an eccentric bring-up Medora Manson gave her. What can you expect of a girl who was allowed to wear black satin at her coming-out ball? Ah, "'I don't remember her in it,' said Mr. Jackson, adding, "'Poor girl,' in the tone of one who, while enjoying the memory, "'had fully understood at the time what the sight portended. "'It's odd,' Janey remarked, "'that she should have kept such an ugly name as Ellen. "'I should have changed it to Elaine.' "'She glanced about the table to see the effect of this. "'Her brother laughed. "'Why Elaine? "'I don't know.' "'It sounds more... more Polish,' said Janie, blushing. "'It sounds more conspicuous, and that can hardly be what she wishes,' said Mrs. Archer distantly. "'Why not?' broke in her son, growing suddenly argumentative. "'Why shouldn't she be conspicuous if she chooses? "'Why should she slink about as if it were she who had disgraced herself? "'She's a poor Ellen,' "'certainly because she had the bad luck to make a wretched marriage. "'But I don't see but that's a reason for hiding her head "'as if she were the culprit.' "'That, I suppose,' said Mr. Jackson, speculatively, "'is the line the Mingotts mean to take.' "'The young man reddened. "'I don't have to wait for their cue, if that's what you mean, sir. Madame Olenska has had an unhappy life. "'That doesn't make her an outcast. "'There are rumors.' Began Mr. Jackson, glancing at Janie. Oh, I know. The secretary, the young man took him up. Nonsense, mother. Janie's a grown-up. They say, don't they, that the secretary helped her to get away from her brute of a husband, who kept her practically a prisoner. Well, what if he did? I hope there isn't a man among us who wouldn't have done the same thing in such a case. Mr. Jackson glanced over his shoulder to say to the sad little butler, "'Perhaps that sauce, just a little, after all.' "'Then, having helped himself, he remarked, "'I'm told she's looking for a house. "'She means to live here.' "'I hear she means to get a divorce,' said Janie boldly. "'I hope she will,' Archer exclaimed. "'The word had fallen like a bombshell "'in the pure and tranquil atmosphere of the Archer dining-room.' Mrs. Archer raised her delicate eyebrows in the particular curve that signified the butler, and the young man, himself mindful of the bad taste in discussing such intimate manners in public, hastily branched off into an account of his visit to old Mrs. Mingott. After dinner, according to immemorial custom, Mrs. Archer and Janey trailed their long silk draperies up to the drawing-room, where— while the gentlemen smoked below stairs, they sat beside a carcel lamp with an engraved globe, facing each other across a rosewood work-table with a green silk bag under it, and stitched at the two ends of a tapestry band of field-flowers destined to adorn an occasional chair in the drawing-room of young Mrs. Newland Archer. While this rite was in progress in the drawing-room, Archer settled Mr. Jackson in an armchair near the fire in the Gothic library and handed him a cigar. Mr. Jackson sank into the armchair with satisfaction, lit his cigar with perfect confidence—it was Newland who bought them— and, stretching his thin old ankles to the coals, said, "'You say the secretary merely helped her to get away, my dear fellow?' "'Well, he was still helping her,' "'a year later, then. "'For somebody met him living at Lausanne together. "'Newland reddened. "'Living together? Well, why not? "'Who had the right to make her life over if she hadn't? "'I am sick of the hypocrisy that would bury alive a woman of her age "'if her husband prefers to live with harlots.' "'He stopped and turned away angrily to light his cigar. "'Women ought to be free.' As free as we are, he declared, making a discovery of which he was too irritated to measure the terrific consequences. Mr. Sillerton Jackson stretched his ankles near the coals and emitted a sardonic whistle. Well, he said after a pause, apparently Count Olenski takes your view, for I never heard of his having lifted a finger to get his wife back. End of Chapter 5 Chapter 6 That evening, after Mr. Jackson had taken himself away, and the ladies had retired to their chintz-curtain bedroom, Newland Archer mounted thoughtfully to his own study. A vigilant hand had, as usual, kept the fire alive and the lamp trimmed, and the room, with its rows and rows of books, its bronze and steel statuettes of the fencers on the mantelpiece and its many photographs of famous pictures looked homelike and welcoming. As he dropped into his armchair near the fire, his eyes rested on a large photograph of May Welland, which the young girl had given him in the first days of their romance and which had now displaced all the other portraits on the table. With a new sense of awe, He looked at the frank forehead, serious eyes, and gay, innocent mouth of the young creature whose soul's custodian he was to be. That terrifying product of the social system he belonged to and believed in, the young girl who knew nothing and expected everything, looked back at him like a stranger through May Wellen's familiar features. And once more it was borne in on him that marriage was not the safe anchorage he had been taught to think, but a voyage on uncharted seas. The case of the Countess Olenska had stirred up old, settled convictions and set them drifting dangerously through his mind. His own exclamation, "'Women should be free, as free as we are,' struck to the root of a problem that it was agreed in his world to regard as non-existent. Nice women, however wronged, would never claim the kind of freedom he meant, and generous-minded men like himself were therefore, in the heat of argument, the more chivalrously ready to concede it to them. Such verbal generosities were, in fact, only a humbugging disguise of the inexorable conventions that tied things together and bound people down to the old pattern. But here he was, pledged to defend on the part of his betrothed's cousin, conduct that, on his own wife's part, would justify him in calling down on her all the thunders of church and state. Of course, the dilemma was purely hypothetical. Since he wasn't a blackguard Polish nobleman, it was absurd to speculate what his wife's rights would be if he were— But Newland Archer was too imaginative not to feel that, in his case and May's, the tie might gall for reasons far less gross and palpable. What could he and she really know of each other, since it was his duty as a decent fellow to conceal his past from her, and hers, as a marriageable girl, to have no past to conceal? What if, for some one of the subtler reasons that would tell with both of them, they should tire of each other, misunderstand or irritate each other? He reviewed his friends' marriages, the supposedly happy ones, and saw none that answered even remotely to the passionate and tender comradeship which he pictured as his permanent relation with May Welland. He perceived that such a picture presupposed, on her part, the experience, the versatility, the freedom of judgment, which she had been carefully trained not to possess. And with a shiver of foreboding, he saw his marriage becoming what most of the other marriages about him were, a dull association of material and social interests held together by ignorance on the one side and hypocrisy on the other. "'Lawrence Lefferts occurred to him "'as the husband who had "'most completely realized "'this enviable ideal. "'As became the high priest of form, "'he had formed a wife "'so completely to his own convenience "'that, in the most conspicuous moments "'of his frequent love affairs "'with other men's wives, "'she went about in smiling unconsciousness, "'saying that Lawrence "'was so frightfully strict, "'and had been known to blush indignantly "'and avert her gaze when someone alluded in her presence to the fact that Julius Beaufort, as became a foreigner of doubtful origin, had what was known in New York as another establishment. Archer tried to console himself with the thought that he was not quite such an ass as Larry Lefferts, nor may such a simpleton as poor Gertrude. But the difference was, after all, one of intelligence and not of standards. In reality, they all lived in a kind of hieroglyphic world, where the real thing was never said, or done, or even thought, but only represented by a set of arbitrary signs. As when Mrs. Welland, who knew exactly why Archer had pressed her to announce her daughter's engagement at the Beaufort Ball, and had indeed expected him to do no less, yet felt obliged to simulate reluctance and the air of Having her hand forced, quite as in the books on primitive man that people of advanced cultures were beginning to read, the savage bride is dragged with shrieks from her parents' tent. The result, of course, was that the young girl who was the center of this elaborate system of mystification remained the more inscrutable for her very frankness and assurance. She was frank, poor darling, because she had nothing to conceal. "'assured, because she knew of nothing to be on her guard against, "'and with no better preparation than this, "'she was to be plunged overnight "'into what people evasively called the facts of life.' "'The young man was sincerely, but placidly, in love. "'He delighted in the radiant good looks of his betrothed, "'in her health, her horsemanship, her grace and quickness at games.' "'and the shy interest in books and ideas "'that she was beginning to develop under his guidance. "'She had advanced far enough "'to join him in ridiculing the idols of the king, "'but not to feel the beauty of Ulysses and the lotus-eaters. "'She was straightforward, loyal and brave. "'She had a sense of humor, "'chiefly proved by her laughing at his jokes, "'and he suspected in the depths of her innocently gazing soul, a glow of feeling that it would be a joy to waken. But when he had gone the brief round of her, he returned discouraged by the thought that all this frankness and innocence were only an artificial product. Untrained human nature was not frank and innocent. It was full of the twists and defenses of an instinctive guile. And he felt himself... Oppressed by this creation of facetious purity so cunningly manufactured by a conspiracy of mothers and aunts and grandmothers and long-dead ancestresses because it was supposed to be what he wanted, what he had a right to, in order that he might exercise his lordly pleasure in smashing it like an image made of snow. There was a certain... "'triteness in these reflections. "'They were those habitual to young men "'on the approach of their wedding day. "'But they were generally accompanied "'by a sense of compunction and self-abasement "'of which Newland Archer felt no trace. "'He could not deplore, "'as Thackeray's heroes so often exasperated him by doing, "'that he had not a blank page to offer his bride "'in exchange for the unblemished one she was to give to him.' He could not get away from the fact that if he had been brought up as she had, they would have been no more fit to find their way about than the babes in the wood. Nor could he, for all his anxious cogitations, see any honest reason, that is, unconnected with his own momentary pleasure and the passion of masculine vanity, why his bride should not have been allowed the same freedom of experience as himself. Such questions— at such an hour were bound to drift through his mind, but he was conscious that their uncomfortable persistence and precision were due to the inopportune arrival of the Countess Olenska. Here he was, at the very moment of his betrothal, a moment for pure thoughts and cloudless hopes, pitchforked into a coil of scandal which raised all the special problems he could have preferred to let lie. "'Hang Ellen Olenska,' he grumbled, as he covered his fire and began to undress. "'He could not really see why her fate should have the least bearing on his, "'yet he dimly felt that he had only just begun to measure the risks of the championship "'which his engagement had forced upon him. "'A few days later, the bolt fell.' the Lovell Mingotts had sent out cards for what was known as a formal dinner, that is, three extra footmen, two dishes for each course, and a Roman punch in the middle, and had headed their invitations with the words, "'To meet the Countess Olenska,' in accordance with the hospitable American fashion, which treats strangers as if they were royalty, or at least as their ambassadors.' The guests had been selected with a boldness and discrimination in which the initiated recognized the firm hand of Catherine the Great. Associated with such immemorial standbys as the Selfridge Marys, who were asked everywhere because they always had been, the Beauforts, on whom there was a claim of relationship, and Mr. Sillerton Jackson and his sister Sophie, who went wherever her brother told her to, were some of the most fashionable and yet most irreproachable of the dominant young married set. The Lawrence Leffertses, Mrs. Lefferts Rushworth, the lovely widow, the Harry Thorleys, the Reggie Chiverses, and young Morris Dagonet and his wife, who was a van der Luyden. The company, indeed, was perfectly assorted, since all the members belonged to the little inner group of people who, during the long New York season, Disported themselves together daily and nightly with apparently undiminished zest. Forty eight hours later, the unbelievable had happened. Everyone had refused the Mingott's invitation, except the Beauforts and old Mr. Jackson and his sister. The intended slight was emphasized by the fact that even the Reggie Chiverses, who were of the Mingott clan, Were among those inflicting it, and by the uniform wording of the notes, in all of which the writers regretted that they were unable to accept without the mitigating plea of a previous engagement that ordinary courtesy prescribed. New York society was, in those days, far too small and too scant in its resources for everyone in it, including livery-stable keepers, butlers, and cooks, not to know exactly on which evenings people were free. And it was thus possible for the recipients of Mrs. Lovell Mingott's invitations to make cruelly clear their determination not to meet the Countess Holenska. The blow was unexpected, but the Mingott's, as their way was, met it gallantly. Mrs. Lovell Mingott confided the case to Mrs. Welland, who confided it to Newland Archer, who, aflame at the outrage, appealed passionately and authoritatively to his mother, who, after a painful period of inward resistance and outward temporizing, succumbed to his instances, as she always did, and, immediately embracing his cause with an energy redoubled by her previous hesitations, put on her gray velvet bonnet and said, I'll go and see Louisa van der Luyden. The New York of Newland Archer's day was a small and slippery pyramid in which, as yet, hardly a fissure had been made or a foothold gained. At its base was a firm foundation of what Mrs. Archer called plain people, an honorable but obscure majority of respectable families who, as in the case of the Spicers or the Leffertses, or the Jacksons, "'had been raised above their level by marriage "'with one of the ruling clans. "'People,' Mrs. Archer always said, "'were not as particular as they used to be. "'And with old Catherine Spicer ruling one end of Fifth Avenue "'and Julius Beaufort the other, "'you couldn't expect the old traditions to last much longer. "'Firmly narrowing upward from the wealthy "'but inconspicuous substratum "'was the compact and dominant group,' which the Mingotts, Newlands, Chiverses, and Mansons so actively represented. Most people imagined them to be the very apex of the pyramid, but they themselves, at least those of Mrs. Archer's generation, were aware that, in the eyes of the professional genealogist, only a still smaller number of families could claim that eminence. "'Don't tell me,' Mrs. Archer would say to her children, "'all this modern newspaper rubbish about a New York aristocracy. "'If there is one, neither the Mingotts nor the Mansons belong to it, "'no, nor the Newlands or the Chiverses either. "'Our grandfathers and great-grandfathers were just respectable English or Dutch merchants "'who came to the colonies to make their fortune and stayed because they did so well. "'One of your grandfathers signed the Declaration.' and another was a general on Washington's staff. These are things to be proud of, but they have nothing to do with rank or class. New York has always been a commercial community, and there are not more than three families in it who can claim an aristocratic origin in the real sense of the word. Mrs. Archer and her son and daughter, like everyone else in New York, knew who these privileged beings were. The Dagonets of Washington Square, who came of an old English county family, allied with the Pitts and the Foxes. The Lannings, who had intermarried with the descendants of Count de Grasse. And the Vandeloidens, direct descendants of the first Dutch governor of Manhattan, and related, by pre-revolutionary marriages, to several members of the French and British aristocracy. The Lannings survived only in the person of two very old but lively Miss Lannings, who lived cheerfully and reminiscently among family portraits and Chippendale. The Dagonets were a considerable clan, allied to the best names in Baltimore and Philadelphia, but the Vanderloydens, who stood above all of them, had faded into a kind of super-terrestrial twilight, from which only two figures impressively emerged, those of Mr. and Mrs. Henry van der Luyden. Mrs. Henry van der Luyden had been Louisa Dagonet, and her mother had been the grandmother of Colonel de Lack, of an old Channel Island family, who had fought under Cornwallis and had settled in Maryland after the war, with his bride, Lady Angelica Trevenna, fifth daughter of the Earl of St. Austrie. The tie between the Dagonets, the Dulacs of Maryland, and their aristocratic Cornish kinfolk, the Trevennas, had always remained close and cordial. Mr. and Mrs. van der Luyden had more than once paid long visits to the present head of the House of Trevenna, the Duke of St. Austrey, at his county seat in Cornwall, and at St. Austrey in Gloucestershire and his grace had frequently announced his intention of some day returning their visit without the Duchess, who feared the Atlantic. Mr. and Mrs. van der Luyden divided their time between Trevenna, their place in Maryland, and their great estate on the Hudson, which had been one of the colonial grants of the Dutch government to the famous first governor, and of which Mr. van der Luyden was still Patroon. Their large, solemn house in Madison Avenue "'was seldom opened, and when they came to town "'they received in it only their most intimate friends. "'I wish you would go with me, Newland,' his mother said suddenly, "'pausing at the door of the brown coupé. "'Louisa is fond of you, and, of course, "'it's on account of dear May that I'm taking this step, "'and also because, if we don't all stand together, "'there'll be no such thing as society left.' end of chapter 6 and heaven forbid that should happen so
0: so newland has this opportunity to kind of sit back and search his soul and he starts to realize that while he's been so happy to know that he's marrying may who is of his world he's starting to get a hint that what he's been looking at as innocence is really just cloistered ignorance. And whatever emotional benefit he got from the affair that he had with a married woman, shh, um, he's probably not going to find that with May. And that has to be a shocking revelation for anyone after just getting engaged, but especially shocking to Newland, who doesn't really seemed to have anyone who he could talk to about this. At least not right now. And, and then, and then, to offer the party, to throw the party, a huge dinner party, and have everybody send exactly the same refusal letter without even saying why they couldn't make it. Even today... That would be a horror <laughs> to be on the receiving end of that, and I, I think Edith Wharton does a, a few things in these chapters. She does a really great job of describing location. We get the Chippendales, we get the kind of lamp, we get all of the stuff, and I've I've linked to pictures for as many things as I could in in the uh, enhanced ebook that I've got going. But it, uh, I am shocked at how society is behaving because again it goes right back to high school right holy smoke i i would love to tell you that this is the last time we will see people behaving like this and i would be lying to you which i won't do so there it is you're gonna see people behave like this again oh and did you catch the slam against dickens dickens has never drawn a gentleman I loved that, that Newland and his family, his mother, his sister, they they love literature, they love travel, they love all that stuff, but Dickens, Dickens is a writer up with which we shall not put. I loved that, and I also wanted to let you know there was a word, a very old word, that I don't think we really use much anymore um, that may have sounded odd to you. The word is patroon, and for those of you who are in the Netherlands or Germany, this probably didn't sound very strange to you, because my, my understanding is that the word patroon is actually Dutch for the owner or head of a company, which makes sense. It does sound, it sounds right. But in, in the New World, uh, especially in and around New York, Uh, Patroons were granted. They were landowners. They were granted large tracts of land. So uh, those of you who live in New York City, you know what I'm talking about. There are these weird Dutch names. They're Spite and (laughs) Divel. They're weird Dutch names. They're only weird because we're not speaking Dutch anymore. But Spite and Dival is still a, a train stop and I'm not even going to pretend that I can spell it for you. It is a really interesting looking word though. Up up in uh, Croton, where we used to live, the Van Cortland Manor was there and Van Cortland owned like all of Westchester at one point. I mean, it was massive how much this guy was in charge of. He was a patroon. And so this um, transferred when the British came in and took over the New Netherlands, which was old New York, uh, the British took over the same same system. They called it the manor system. And so you got uh, manor houses and and things like that. But you're going to hear the word patroon uh, a couple more times, I think, throughout the course of the book. And that is what it refers to. But Newland is getting schooled. And this is the beginning of his education right here. And It's going to be a rough one for him. So, on that happy and light and airy note, I will leave you. Uh, Don't forget to check out the show notes. There will be links to lots of cool things, plus the Brene Brown uh, video, which you really should watch, and the link to the letters to save for a sad day. And don't forget, if you leave a comment, use Rafflecopter and you will be put into the raffle for one of the gorgeous Age of Innocence pendants. Go take a look at the pendants on the show notes. Go take a look at her store. Catherine's shop is full of really gorgeous, gorgeousness that I know you will like. And with that, I will leave you. Take care. Have a great week. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Like craftlet Leave us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or post a link to us when you comment on literary blogs. You can listen via Stitcher Radio, craftlit.com, just-the-books.com, hyphen hyphen or via our Android or iPhone app. You can also use the free Craftlit app to access premium subscriber content. Just the Books and Craftlet are made possible by the support of our listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember... If your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one over.